We have now completed the presentation of the major ideas that comprise the internal plot or the inner or hidden theme of the event of the blessings of Yitzchak to Yaakov and Esav. We have now concluded that. Now, if we reflect, however, the truth is, is that the major ideas that we have discussed until now, in other words, this scenario actually was foretold 63 years ago before. In the prophecy that was given to Rivka when she went to find out why she was having so much pregnancy pains. If you recall, in the beginning of Pasha's told us, it said over there, Vayomer Hashem Law, and the Rabboni Shalom said to her, of course he didn't speak to her directly, he spoke of course through the agency of Shem, who was a Novi. In any case, it says there that the Rabboni Shalom said to her, Shnei Goyim Bivitnech, there are two great nations in your insides, in your uh, innards, and two great nations, two great kingdoms, will actually separate from your bowels. And one nation shall be greater than another nation, one kingdom shall be greater than another kingdom. But the older one shall serve the younger one. Now, what do we see here? It says here that two exalted nations will be inside you. That's what it says. There are two exalted nations inside of you. In other words, what this means in the prophecy is that there are two exalted nations inside you that can bring tikkun to the Bria. Therefore, they are referred to, of course, as great nations. Because each one of them, each individual, both Yaakov, of course, and Esau, can bring a tikkun to the Bria. That is, therefore, they are referred as Goyim Bivitnech, two great nations inside of you. However, what will happen to them? And the prophecy continues. These two great kingdoms shall be separated from inside of you. In other words, what will happen instead is that these great kingdoms, which have the power of being masakin, the kilkel in chasan in creation, these great kingdoms will split. What does that mean? That one will retain the power of Tikkun, and therefore he will be Masakin the Bria, the Kilkul and the Chasan in the Bria, whereas the other kingdom will lose that power of Tikkun. And instead of spreading holiness, instead of being Masakin the Bria, of course, this kingdom shall spread tremendous evil throughout the world. So, therefore, we so far have two ideas in this prophecy. That in the beginning there will be two great nations both having the power of Tikkun. And after that, of course, these individuals will separate <clears throat> and only one will retain the power of Tikkun and be massacred the actual uh, creation. And the other will lose the power of Tikkun and, of course, bring tremendous Ra, tremendous wickedness throughout the world. Now, the prophecy continues into the third phase. Lest you think that <clears throat> both can rule supreme at the same time, or perhaps both can be <clears throat> at the bottom of the rung, <clears throat> or be in dominion by others at the same time, that's a mistake. The prophecy says that both kingdoms will never be equal. There is no such thing as equality. In other words, that the brochus of abundance and wealth and world domination 
which will be given out by Yitzchak, will always be by only one of them, and never by both at the same time. In other words, <clears throat> when first Yaakov will have them, but if he sins, and therefore he loses them, the one who will get those brachas, of course, will be Esav. That's what's meant by that they will never be equal. One will always be greater. And the reason why one is always greater, of course, is that the blessings, which is the greatness, because the blessings give material wealth, abundance, of course, and the world domination. This is the brachas. These brachas, of course, will only go to one person. So initially, of course, they go to Yaakov. However, if he loses them because he sins, and if his descendants also lose them because they sin, then, of course, these brachas, these brachas of abundant uh, material wealth and world domination will go, of course, to Esav. Thus, we see that since the brachas can only be by one and not by both, therefore, obviously, these, uh, this, the, this idea that they will never be equal, of course, is true. Now, this is the third phase of the prophecy. The fourth phase of the prophecy, of course, <clears throat> is where it says, that the older brother shall serve the younger brother. What does that mean? <clears throat> that in the end, the older shall ultimately serve the younger. In Ilam Hazet, as I had mentioned previously, that most people think that when it says, that the older shall serve the younger, it means in Ilam Abba, that eventually Yaakov and his descendants, of course, will reign supreme over Esav and his descendants. But the truth is not like that. The truth is that Esav shall serve Yaakov, not in Ilam Abba, but in Ilam Hazet. How? How do we understand that? If Esav does not have the brachas, if Yaakov retains the brachas, then of course he serves Yaakov and his descendants, because Yaakov and his, and, and his descendants, of course, retain world dominance. However, if Yaakov and his descendants sin, <clears throat> then of course Esav gets the brachas, and Esav will still serve Yaakov. Because even if he has the brachas, he will serve Yaakov through an hogas that he will be used as the instrument by the Rabbani Shalom to actually allow Yaakov and his descendants to massacre the Kilkul in creation. In other words, when Yaakov and his descendants will have gone into the second method of being massacred in the Kilkul in creation, which is exile, subjugation, and persecution, the ones who will be doing that, the ones who will be subjugating and persecuting the Jews, of course, is Esav. Therefore, Esav unwittingly and unknowingly enables Yaakov to bring about the Tikkun of Kilkul in creation. Thus, of course, Esav serves the purpose of being the instrument, being the vehicle of Anhogas Yichud, whereby the Jews, of course, can be Zeichah Ta'ilam Habo. And, of course, <clears throat> where do we see this in the Pasik by Rav Ya'avoid Tzoya, that the older shall serve the younger? Where do we see that it means in Ilam Hazeh that even if the older one suppresses or oppresses the younger one, that he should also serve the, uh, the younger one in terms of being the instrument of Anhogas Yichud? Because I had mentioned previously in the word Ya'avoid, because Ya'avoid is written without a vav, therefore the Cree of Ya'avoid is Ya'avoid. Yud ay, ayin, beis, dalad, without a vav. Ya'avoid means he shall serve. But the ksiv of Ya'avoid, of Yud ayin, beis, dalad, is really Ya'avoid. Therefore, what it really says is Verav Ya'avoid so'ir, that the older shall serve the younger. In any case, why? Because what will really happen is Verav Ya'avoid so'ir that the older one, Esav, shall oppress and enslave the younger one. 
as is indicated by the Ksiv, Ya'aved, because that is really the way it is written. Thus, the older one or Esav shall enslave or oppress the younger one, Yaakov. And even if they do this, and of course they will do this because that's the prophecy, they will be the instruments of Anhangas HaYichud. Therefore, in real effect, it's Rav Ya'avoyt So'ir. The older one really serves the younger one. Because, whether, uh, because even though ultimately the older one will oppress and enslave the younger, and of course lead him into tremendous amount of subjugation and persecution and exile, still, because that is the method, or method B, of being Masak and the Kilkin creation, in effect, Asif is nothing more than the vehicle, the instrument by which Yaakov, of course, and his descendants are Masak and the Bria. Therefore, the Rav Ya'avoyitzo'ir is the ultimate and final phase of the prophecy. Therefore, we see that this prophecy actually foretells the entire history of Yaakov and his descendants, and also their relationship to Esav and his descendants. In other words, we see that there basically there have been four ideas until now. The first idea is that both were born on an equal plane, both of them being able to massacre the Bria, to bring about a tikkun of the Kilko and the Chasan in the Bria, as I had mentioned previously. The second phase is where Yaakov took away this power of Tikkun from Esav, this power of being Musak and the Kilkul, and he took it for himself. This was in the initial portion of Pasha's Tildes. In the latter half of Pasha's Tildes, when Yitzchak gives the brochus to Yaakov and Esav, of course, there we see that what Yitzchak says to Yaakov, ultimately, is that Yaakov will have those brochus the brochus, the blessings of material wealth, abundance, and world domination. However, these are conditional, conditional upon his and his descendants observing the Torah and mitzvahs. However, if they don't, then these brochus are taken away and given to Esau, because he merited through his chus of kibbut over Aim, as I had previously mentioned in the previous shurim. And Yaakov and his descendants and said, lose the brachas, of course, and they have to massacre the Kilkin creation through method B, which is exile, subjugation, and persecution. Of course, now this is the third phase where Yitzchak does this, where the brachas either is to Yaakov or to Esav, and therefore neither of them can ever be equal. And the fourth phase, of course, is where uh, the Pesach says that what will be throughout history is that uh, Yaakov, of course, will be served by Esav, even if Esav oppresses him and enslaves him. Because that is nothing more, of course, than that Esav is the agent or the vehicle or the instrument by the Rabbani Shalom to, of course, enable the Jews to bring a tikkun into the world and therefore earn Olam Habo. Now, these then are the four phases which are literally prophesied to Rivka about what would happen. Now, the Torah therefore reveals the future relationship between Yaakov and Esav, not only here, but also just a little later when it says, after Yaakov and Esav, uh, the Torah talks about them, and of course, after Esav was born, it says, and afterwards, his brother went out, referring of course to Yaakov, and his hand was grabbing onto, it was holding the heel of Esav. In other words, it says that Yaakov emerged second, grabbing onto the heel of Esav. This is what the Torah says. This event where we see Yaakov grabbing onto the heel of Esav is really a physical expression 
a symbolic idea of the true relationship between Yaakov and Esav, namely that Esav is standing up, Yaakov seizes hold of Esav's heel while he crouches in the back of Esav and he causes him to fall forward by yanking his heel backward. Therefore, what this, of course, says is that Esav will ultimately be overthrown by Yaakov. This also is a, the relationship between Yaakov and Esav that the Torah states. Now, as I had mentioned, this means, of course, the fact that Yaakov has to overthrow Esav, being in the back of him, in the sense of crouching and holding his heel and then overthrowing Esav, this means, of course, is that Yaakov will not be to ilm habo mishpat. In other words, that Yaakov and his descendants will not be able to overthrow Esav by virtue of justice alone, without the intervention of the Rabbanu Shalom. But this indicates that when it says that Yaakov is in the back of Esav and that he overthrows Esav with a great deal of subtlety, okay, with armor, with craftiness and concealment because he's in the back of Esav, this, of course, indicates that Esav will eventually be overthrown. However, it will only be overthrown to Anhogas HaYichud. In other words, where the Rebbein Shalom will have to intervene to allow Yaakov to overthrow Esav through a tremendous amount of subterfuge and concealment in historical events. This is what that indi- indicates. Now, to continue, interestingly enough, the Rebbein Shalom wanted to reveal this most significant and fundamental plot and its future outcome to the entire world. And you know how he did it? He shaped the country of Rome, which of course is Esav. He shaped it like a real boot. If you look on a map, you will notice that in the Mediterranean uh, Sea, the country of Italy is actually shaped like a boot. So what the Rebbein did is he shaped the country of Rome, which is Esav. He shapes it like a boot. He makes it slant forward because if you look at Italy, Italy is in the shape of a boot, but the boot is forward. It's slanting forward. And this indicates that the wearer of the boot is falling forward because anybody who would wear the boot in that position would indicate that he's falling forward. What the Rabbi next does is he places the country of Israel behind the heel of the boot. And this, of course, indicates that Israel is making Rome topple forward. Thus, we see that the Rabbi Shalom reveals this most fundamental plot, the tremendous idea and future outcome to the entire world by establishing a permanent fixture in terms of a geographical uh, shape. In other words, that Esav, who is Rome, is shaped like a boot. That's, that's the idea of the heel of Esav, because the greatest physical manifestation or physical expression of Esav, of course, is a boot, because that's what the Torah refers to Esav as, that Yaakov is seizing the uh, heel or the boot of, of uh, Esav. What the Torah does, therefore, what the Rebbein does is he makes the boot slant forward. And this indicates the second idea, of course, that Esau will eventually be overthrown or toppled forward. And he puts Eretz Israel behind this boot to indicate that the cause of Esau's falling forward, of course, is because of Yaakov. And the reason why Yaakov is behind Esau, of course, is the way Yaakov gets Esau to fall is through the agency of Anhogas Hayichud. Thus we see that geographic shapes of countries are also determined by Hashkova principles, interestingly enough. And of course, and these geographic shapes can reveal profound ideas about the universe itself. 
Thus we see that Rome's shape, which is the shape of a boot, the fact that it slants forward, which of course indicates that it is toppling forward or being overthrown, and the fact that Israel is geographically located behind it, which of course indicates that Israel causes the boot to fall forward, reveals the basic universal conflict and the final outcome of what will be that Yaakov will eventually overthrow Esav through the agency of Anhogos Sayyichod. Thus we see that Esav is ultimately overthrown and that the creation achieves its taking through the efforts of the Jews with the aid of Anhogos Sayyichod. And uh, the Rabbi Shalom, interestingly enough, indicated it in a permanent fashion, in a symbolic fashion to the entire world by actually making the geographical shapes of these countries, of course, resemble exactly what is to transpire. And of course, this coincides with the entire prophecy which was told to Rivka that eventually Yaakov will overthrow Esau, even though Esau will oppress and enslave Yaakov, enslave Yaakov, Yaakov will overthrow Esau as indicated by the fact that it says the older shall serve the younger. Therefore, of course, uh, this prophecy which is uh, indicated to Rivka is actually uh, symbolically stated in the form of the shape of the country of Italy, which of course represents Rome, which of course is Edoim, which of course is Esav. Now, before we pr proceed <clears throat> to conclude the Parshas Tildes, I want to backtrack slightly. Now, when Yaakov leaves after receiving the brochas from Yitzchok, and Esav then comes in to be blessed, it says over there that when uh, Yitzchok asks Esav, who are you? And he says, I am Esav, your son, your firstborn son. It then says that Vayechrad Yitzchok Harod Admi And Yitzchok trembled, an exceedingly great trembling. In other words, he was incredibly, awesomely frightened. Now, it is very difficult to understand why he trembled so exceedingly. Not only is it difficult to understand why he trembled with such a tremendous or a great emotional fear, but it's also difficult to understand why he trembled at all. Because there are two things. Number one is that he trembled. And number two is that he trembled admi'oid. So the question then is, it is difficult to understand why did he tremble so much and why did he tremble at all? Why? Because this indicates tremendous fear. Because that's trembling is. When a person trembles so greatly, obviously he's in tremendous fear or panic. Now, one would think that after realizing that he had been deceived by Yaakov, because that's exactly what happened. When Esav came in and said, I am Esav, your firstborn, he then realized that the one who took the brachos, of course, was Yaakov and not Esav. Therefore, he realized that he was deceived by Yaakov. So one would think that uh, after realizing that he had been deceived by Yaakov, he shouldn't be exceedingly frightful, but instead he should be exceedingly angry and enraged, not fearful in an awesome fashion. Because if you're fooled by somebody, your natural reaction is to be very, very angry, not to be very, very frightened. So therefore, obviously, we cannot say the pshat there is that Yitzchok was tremendously frightened because he realized that Yaakov deceived him. Because then the appropriate emotion, of course, would have been anger and not fear. Now, Rashi, feeling this difficulty, he quotes a medrash. It says in Bracious Rabbah that what Yitzchok really saw 
was Gehinoim open under Esav when Esav came in. In other words, Esav walked in, and as Esav walked in, he saw Esav with Gehenim open underneath him. So therefore, at that point, he then trembled tremendously. Now, why did he tremble? Because he saw that Esav was destined for Gehenim, because Gehenim was going with Esav, which meant, of course, therefore, that Esav was a great Russia, because obviously one who's destined for Gehenim is, of course, a great Russia. And he also realized that he fooled him for all these years. You know, that Yitzchak realized that Esav fooled him for these years, all 63 years. But then, if that's the case, if this is a pshat, that is why he trembled exceedingly, because he saw Gehenim go in under Esav when Esav came in, as the Medrash says. Then the question still remains, <coughs> even with this Medrash, because he should have been exceedingly enraged and angry, not incredibly fearful at having been deceived by Esav all these years. Again, we encounter an inappropriate emotion. In other words, if the reason why Yitzchak Ex, uh, so exceedingly trembled is because he realized that Esav was a Russia since Gehenim came in with him. He realized also <coughs> that, of course, Esav deceived him all these years. If that is the pshat, then what he should have felt was a tremendous rage. He should have been livid with anger, not tremendously frightful. So even according to this medrash, it is difficult to understand why Yitzchak was so frightened. Now, Perhaps you may say he was very greatly frightened. You know why? Because when he realized that Esav, his son, his firstborn son, the one he loved, was going to get Gehenim, that's why he was very frightened. But the truth is, is that if this is Pshat, in other words, if the Medrash means that, that he saw Esav come in with Gehenim underneath him, so then of course he realized that Esav was destined for Gehenim, and therefore he was very frightened. But then, of course, because, why was he frightened? Because his son, the one he loved so much, was going to get Gehenim. But then this also doesn't explain why he was so incredibly frightened. Because what Yitzchak should have felt, he should have been greatly dismayed and grief-stricken that his first son, the one he loved, would get Gehenim. In other words, when he realized that the son he so loves, his firstborn, is a Russia and destined for Gehenim, instead of Oilam Habor, he should, of course, then been tremendously dismayed, disappointed, and grief-stricken. Tremendous sorrow and sadness is what he should have ex experienced. Not fear. A person is frightened when he feels something is going to happen with him. Not when he sees something happening to somebody else. He should have been tremendously in grief and sorrow because his son was going to go to Gehenim. Why does the tourist say that he was so exceedingly frightened? So we have to say that this pshat also doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe there's a fourth pshat. Maybe he was exceedingly fearful because he almost committed a tremendous chet, a grievous sin. Why? Because he almost gave the brachas to Esav, who was a rasha, instead of Yaakov, who was a tzaddik. Therefore, he almost committed a tremendous sin. Therefore, he was tremendously frightened for his own welfare, for his own well-being. And maybe he thought that he himself would get Gehenim. Yitzchak thought that he himself would be deserving of Gehenim because he almost committed a tremendous sin by giving, of course, the brachas to Ace of the Russia instead of Yaakov the Tzaddik. Maybe this fourth pshat is the way we can understand why Yitzchak had such an incredible, awesome fear. 
But the truth is, when you think about it, that this also cannot be. This also doesn't make sense. Why? Because when a great tzaddik, especially an of, and they of course are great condition, among the greatest who ever lived, when they commit a sin, or if they almost commit a sin, they don't fear for their own lives or their well-being. That's not what a tzaddik feels. We, of course, if we commit a sin, we have years ahead. Because we're afraid if we commit a sin or if we're almost about to commit a sin, we have years ahead, maybe we'll get Gehenna as a result. So we fear for our well-being. Tzaddikim do not have years ahead. They have years heronimus. They fear God because of His awesomeness. And the truth is that they don't even have years heronimus. They fear God not because of His awesomeness, but they, are, they love God so much that they're afraid that they may do something wrong and God may be paying as a result. So therefore, they don't fear for their lives or well-being as we do, but rather they feel tremendous grief, tremendous sorrow at having not done the Ratzon Hashem, having not done the will of God, and therefore having caused the Rabbani Shalom as one may say, tremendous Agmas Nefesh instead of a Nachas Ruach Lefonov. That is what Sadiqim feel. Not the way we do. So therefore, if that is the case, if Sadiqim feel this, if they are about to commit a sin, or even if they did a sin they feel tremendous remorse and sorrow for the Rabbani Shalom that they went against his will and that therefore the Rabbani Shalom Kaviyoko feels tremendous Agmas Nefesh. That instead of bringing a Nachas Ruch to him, instead of giving him great satisfaction and pleasure to God, Kaviyoko, instead they brought him great Agmas Nefesh. But Sadiqim are not afraid of their own well-being. What concerns them is only the happiness of the Rabbani Shalom. If that is the case, so then even if Yitzchak felt that he almost did a tremendous sin by giving the brochus to Esav who was a Russia instead of Yaakov who was a tzaddik, still he would not have felt this. He would have felt tremendous grief or sorrow at having done or having possibly done this tremendous sin to the Rabbani Shalom and of course tremendous Agmas Nefesh Kaviyocho to the Rabbani Shalom. So we see that all four Pshatim, all four possible ways of learning are difficult to learn because the emotion is always inappropriate. If Yitzchok felt that Yaakov had deceived him, he would have felt tremendous anger. He would have been enraged. If the next shot would be true, where Yitzchok would have felt that Esav had deceived him, in other words, that he saw that Esav was a Russian because Gehenim walked in underneath, and therefore he realized that Esav was a Russian, and therefore had fooled him all these years, he would have again felt tremendous anger, and he would have been tremendous livid with rage. He would not have experienced tremendous fright. The third shot, where perhaps he was tremendously frightened because Esav, his firstborn son, the one he loved so much, is going to get Gehenim, because Gehenim came in with Esav, again he would not have felt this. He would have felt tremendous grief and sorrow <clears throat> that Esav, his son, is destined for Gehenim. Why is he frightened? Perhaps we can say a fourth shot, and that is, that Yitzchak was exceedingly fearful because he almost committed a great sin, a grievous sin. What sin would he have committed? Because he would have given the brochus to Esav the Rasha instead of Yaakov the Tzaddik. In other words, 
he would have given the brachas to Esau the Rosh who does not deserve those brachas instead of giving them to Yaakov the Tzaddik who does deserve and who has merited those brachas. And of course this would have been a great chet. As a result of that, Yitzchak himself could have possibly have deserved Gehenim himself. Maybe that's what he was so frightened of. Because since he realized that he almost gave the brachas to the wrong person, he saw Gehenim under Esau, so perhaps he thought that Gehenim was really for him. And that's why he was so frightened. But this also cannot be. We also cannot say this as a shot. Why? Because it's important to know that when a tzaddik, a great tzaddik, especially, especially on the Madrigavan of, who are of course much higher than tzaddikim, they're kedoshim, when they commit a sin, or if they almost commit a sin, they don't fear for their lives or well-being as we do. They're not afraid of their lives or what will happen to them. That's not why they would be afraid. We, of course, are afraid for these things, but not tzaddikim or great kedoshim. But rather, what they feel if they do a sin, or if they almost committed a sin, is a tremendous fear at almost not having done the rotten of the Rabbani Shlalem. Or actually not having done the rotten. In other words, if they had committed the sin, then they have a tremendous pachad they had, that they have not done the rotten of the Rabbani Shlalem. And if they almost committed a sin, then they have a tremendous fear that they almost have not done the rotten of the Rabbani Shlalem. And therefore, if the rotten of the Rabbani Shlom has not been achieved, then they have caused God, Kaviyochol, so as it were to speak, tremendous or great Agmas Nefesh, instead of a Nachas Ruch Lefonov. In other words, that a tzaddik is always in fear of possibly sinning and causing the Rabbani Shlom, Kaviyochol, intense anguish because his will was not fulfilled. That is what they fear. But they don't fear necessarily at all for their own safety or for their own well-being at all. Now, therefore, um, we see therefore that Yitzchak did not have this fear because he suspected perhaps that he would get Gehenim because he almost committed a grievous sin. That wouldn't explain it. But maybe this is, maybe, in other words, he would not be afraid for his own safety and well-being. So therefore he would not have had the emotion of fear. But maybe this is exactly why Yitzchok was so fa- very greatly frightened. Because he almost gave the brochus to Esav, the Rasha, who was certainly undeserving of them, instead of to Yaakov, the Tzaddik, who certainly merited them. And as a result of this, he would not have done the Ratzon of the Rabboni Shlom, because he would have given them to the wrong undeserving one. Maybe this is what the Pshat is. That it is true that he wasn't frightened for his own safety and well-being, because Sadiqim are not concerned necessarily with that. They are only concerned about the rotten of the Rabbani Shlom, if they bring a Nachas Ruach to God or not. So therefore, it is true that he wasn't frightened for his own safety and well-being, by possible almost getting Gehenna, that he wasn't concerned with or frightened. But he was frightened for the Rabbani Shlom's sake, as explained before. So maybe this is the shot of why Yitzchak, had such a tremendous, exceedingly great trembling. However, the truth is that even this pshat is still not sufficient to answer the question of why Yitzchak had such a great trembling. Because even if it explains the fact that Yitzchak's fear, even if it explains why Yitzchak was afraid, it doesn't adequately explain why he had such an awesome fear. 
because it says vayitz vayechrad yitzchok harod gedulu admi oid. And there's very few ways that the Torah can express such an incredibly awesome fear, because it says vayechrad yitzchok and yitzchok feared harod gedulu a great fear admi oid exceedingly great. So therefore, just because he almost did a chet in which he would have given the brachas to Esav, who was a Russian, undeserving, instead of Yaakov, the tzaddik, who was certainly deserving of it, just because he almost did that chet, it is true he would have had a fear, because he almost violated, almost went against the rotten of the Rabbi Islam, and Kaviyochel almost caused him tremendous agmas nefesh. But it doesn't explain how this could have produced such a charodigidilo admi oid. Obviously, something more is needed to sufficiently answer what generated such awesomely incredible fear in Yitzchak as the Torah itself testified that this is what happened. This is the question. Now, the answer is readily apparent actually when we remember what the bracha signified. If you recall, the bracha signified the permanence of the union of Ben Yosef to Masakan the Kilkul in the Bria, in Yaakov Ovino. That's really what the Brochus signified. And had they gone to Yaakov, of course, it would have meant that Yaakov would now have the permanence of this Indian of Ben Yosef to Masakan the Kilkul in the Bria as a result of the Chet of Adam Rishna. Now, as we know, this was to be given to Yaakov since Esav lost the power of Tikkun many years before when he was 15. If you recall, that Esav, because of his riches, lost his power of Tikkun, and that was signified in the sale of the Bechira to Yaakov. Therefore, Esav no longer has the power of Tikkun, and if he cannot Masakin, he also cannot Makalkel, because they go together. Now, therefore, Yaakov would now have the Indian of Ben Yosef to give permanently to his descendants. This is the significance of the Brochus. Now, had these Brochus been given to Esav instead of Yaakov, could you imagine the incredible repercussions that w- would have resulted? The results would have been cataclysmic in the greatest possible manner. Why? Because this giving of the brachas, which is really the union of Ben Yosef, back to Esav, had, y- had Yitzchak blessed Esav instead of Yaakov, would have resulted in one of two possibilities. Either one of them being incredibly catastrophic to the creation, Either possibility that we can consider what would have happened had Yitzchak given the brachas to Esav instead of Yaakov, either one of these possibilities which I will mention would have been incredibly catastrophic to the creation. Now, what are these two possibilities? One possibility is that Yaakov, who had the ability to bring the tikkun to the kilkul in creation, would not have been able to pass this on to his descendants evermore. Why? since he never received this power permanently, because only the brochus would have given him this particular power in a permanent fashion. And therefore, since he did not receive the brochus, only Asa received it, it would have meant that Yaakov would only have the power of Tikkun only as long as he lived, but he could not pass this on to his descendants. And what would this have been? In other words, since he would not have the, these brochus, because, of course, Yitzchak would have given them to Esav, this power of Tikkun of Kilka would have, would have ended with his passing on, and it would not have been inherited by his descendants after him. 
Thus, the Bria could never have achieved a Tikkun of the Kilkul if his descendants cannot massacre that Kilkul. Could you imagine what kind of devastating results that has on creation? If the Bria cannot achieve a Tikkun of Kilkul, since Yaakov cannot give this to his descendants, since he doesn't have it because the Brochus, which would establish that permanence of those Nyanum, was given to Esav. The second possibility, perhaps even more devastating than the first, because the second possibility is that Esav, when he would have gotten the Brochus, would have gotten back the power of Tikkun of Kilkul, since that is what the Brochus signified. In other words, it's true that at 15 he lost it, but at the age of 63, he would have gotten back that power of Tikkun to massacre the Kilkun creation, because that's exactly what the Brochus signified, that Yitzchak gives the Brochus to Esau. Therefore, it is a restoration of the power to massacre the Bria. But if one can massacre the Bria, one can also macalkal the Bria, because that individual has the power to remove the Rabbani Shalom in the Bria or out of the Bria. Now, since Asif is a great Russia, could you imagine if he would again have the power of Tikkun of the Kilkul? That means he would, have, he would have increased the Kilkul in creation a thousandfold over and above the Kilkul already found in creation as a result of the Chet Adam Rishon. That's the second possibility that would have happened had Esav received the Brochus instead of Yaakov. Two awesomely devastating possibilities. And the first, Yaakov would not have been able to pass this power of Tikkun of Kilkul to his descendants because he doesn't have the Brochus, which is the permanence of the Indian. Or, Esav, or another possibility is that Esav would have gotten the power of Tikkun of Kilkul back, which automatically means he would have the power of Kilkul back. And since Esav is an incredible Russia, he would have increased the tremendous amount of damage in the Bria as a result of his wishes. We therefore see that either possibility is awesome in its devastating effects on creation. Therefore, this is what would have been the repercussion of Esav receiving the brochus instead of Yaakov. This is precisely what Yitzchak realized when he saw Esav coming with Gehenna at his feet. He then realized that if Esav is fit for Gehenna, because Gehenna is under the feet of Esav, so that must be exactly what's being indicated, then he realized that Esav must be a great Russia, and also that he, Yitzchak, was fooled all along by Esav, that Esav had deceived him for 63 years. But at the same time, this realization sent an incredible shockwave through his body. That's why he trembled. Because he realized the awesome devastation of the Bria that would have resulted if he had given Esav the Brochus. Namely, that he realized the incredible anguish the Rabbani Shalom would have felt. And therefore, it says, not just the charoda, not just the fear, not just the charoda gedoyla, not just the great fear, but a charoda gedoyla admioid, a great fear exceedingly. That's what Yitzchok realized, because by seeing that Esav came in with Gehenim under his feet, he realized that Esav was a Russia destined for Gehenim. He realized he was deceived, and he realized the incredible devastation that would have resulted had he given the brochus to Esav that either Esav would have been incredibly mechalkal de Bria, or that Yaakov 
would not have been able to give his descendants the power of that tikkun of Kilkul, and therefore the Ibriya <clears throat> could not achieve its tikkun. Therefore, the fear was that, could you imagine how awesome the anguish of the Rabbeinu Shalom is, that the Bria cannot be Niskan? That's why, in response to the fact that Esav is a Russia and he's afraid he almost did a Chet, Yitzchak is afraid he almost did a Chet, so maybe he gets Gehenim, that'll have a fear, but okay, he did it, almost did a sin, so he's frightened from the fact that the Rosham almost had a tremendous Agmas Nefesh. But the fact that by giving the Brochus to Esav would have meant the Bria destroys itself. So therefore the anguish Kavayochul that the Rabbani Shalom has as a result of the fact that Esav is the, gets the Brochus is a billion times more than if Yitzchak had given the Brochus to Esav and therefore Yitzchak would have felt anguish or rather fear that the Rabbani has anguish over this particular Chet. Therefore the Torah says, a great fear, exceedingly great. In other words, the extraordinary trembling of Yitzchok fits the extraordinary anguish of the Rabbani Shalom Kaviyochol, so as to speak, because we know the Rabbani Shalom has no feelings in that sense. But in terms of the way he relates to us, there would have been an incredible anguish of the Rabbani Shalom because it is not just a sin of giving the brochus to the wrong, undeserving person, namely Esav, that Yitzchak would have had such a fright, or that would have been such a sin, but it would have been wreaking havoc throughout the entire creation for all time. That is what devastated Yitzchak so greatly, and that is exactly why Yitzchak trembled such an exceedingly, awesomely, incredibly great fear. With this, we can now understand and even more, even more profoundly what Yitzchak realized when he saw Gehenim under Esav's feet. Because as you recall, the Medrash says that when Esav entered, Yitzchak saw Gehenim under his feet. Until now, what have we been saying? That Yitzchak realized that Esav was destined for Gehenim because that's why it's under his feet, and therefore Esav must be a Russia. But the truth is that there is an even more profound understanding that Yitzchak realized. You know what that is? Yitzhak realized not only that Esav is destined for Gehenna and therefore and because he's a Russia and therefore Gehenna is under him under Esav but also that Esav was nothing more than the agent or the emissary of the Sitra Akhra himself of the Sultan himself to try to deceive Yitzhak and ensnare him into giving Esav the brochus so that the creation would never reach its intended tikkun therefore Gehenna under Esav's feet indicates that in addition to the fact that Esav is destined for Gehenna, it also indicates in a symbolic way that Esav is the emissary of the Sitra Akhra who is symbolized by this Gehenna under his feet. Because Gehenna is the repository and the residence of the Sultan and all the Klippas. Therefore, in other words, that he realized that who is behind Esav? Who is behind Esav? in terms of trying to deceive Yitzchok to give Esav the brochus. He realized that Esav was nothing more than the shliach or the emissary of the Sitra Akhra who was underneath his feet. In other words, that who was the one who supported Esav? It was the Sitra Akhra as symbolized by Gehenna because that's where he resides in all the Klippas. These were the ones who were under the feet of Esav who support Esav. So Yitzchak realized that it wasn't only that Esav is destined for Gehenna, but that Esav is an emissary. He is a shliach 
for Gehenim that he should be ensnared. He should be fooled by Esau in order to give Esau the brachas that he should again have the power of Tikkun and therefore, of course, Esau either will tremendously makakal the Bria or the fact that Yaakov cannot give this power of Tikkun of Kukul to his descendants. In either case, the sudden one. He realized it that if not for the intervention of the Rabbani Shalom, the creation could possibly have received an incalculable blow for the Sitra Akhra, for the Satan, against the Tikkun of creation. I'll continue next week. Interestingly enough, we have a similar situation by Yaakov when he left Lovon to return to Eretz Yisrael and was very afraid of his upcoming encounter with his brother Esav as is uh, recounted in Parshish Vayishlach. There it says, when it was told to Yaakov by the Malachim that Esav was coming to meet him with 400 men, it so, says over there, Vayira Yaakov mi'orid, and Yaakov was exceedingly afraid. The Beis HaLevi, who was the father of <coughs> Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, says that Yaakov was not afraid for his own safety or well-being but was afraid that if Esav destroys him and his entire family, in other words, if Esav is successful in annihilating Yaakov and his family, then the will of the Rabbani Shlom will not be carried out, therefore producing great anguish to the Rabbani Shlom And it was on that that he was afraid. This is the same idea which I had mentioned, that Tzadikim are only afraid that the Rabbani Shlom's rotsen won't be fulfilled, and this will produce tremendous anguish Admas Nefesh Kavayoho to the Rabbani Shalom. But they are not afraid of their own well-being. But if Yaakov and his family is destroyed, then the Bri will not achieve its intended Tikkun at all, which of course is incredibly catastrophic. In other words, if Yaakov is destroyed in his family, what is the result? The result is, the repercussions are, that the universe, the Bria, the creation, does not achieve what it has to go through. Namely, a tikkun of both the Kilkel and the Chasan in the Bria. Therefore, Yaakov was very much afraid that he and his family would be destroyed and he would produce Agmas Nefesh to Rabbi But if the consequences are that he and his family are destroyed and the Bria is, does never achieve a tikkun, then obviously the anguish that the Rabbi would feel is incredibly awesome, just like what would have happened by Yitzchak. Therefore, we would expect that Yaakov not just to be frightened, but to be frightened exceedingly, since the anguish to the Rabbanishlam Kaviyochol is incredible. Do we find this? The answer is yes, that's exactly what we find. That's why it says, Vayira Yaakov mi'oid. And Yaakov was exceedingly fearful. Not just Vayira Yaakov, and Yaakov was frightened, but Vayira Yaakov mi'oid. In other words, this Mo'id, just as we find by Yitzchak, we find it also by Yaakov. Thus, in both events, by Yitzchak and Yaakov, their fright was for the Rabbani Shalom's sake. And of course, since the Rabbani Shalom would have had an incredible amount of Agmas Nefesh, because we are talking about the destruction of the Bria, therefore, in both cases, both of them had an exceedingly great fear. In other words, in both events, by Yitzchak and Yaakov, their fright for Hashem's sake was incredibly great because in both incidents, the repercussions to creation would have been catastrophic. Therefore, we find the adverb ma'id used in both places because that's exactly what happened. It is interesting to conjecture 
Why is it by Yitzchok? It says Why there was a great fear exceedingly, whereas by Yaakov it only said there was an exceeding fear. And perhaps we can say that according to the second possibility, that had Esav been given the brochus, and it would, had that meant that Esav would have had the power of Tikkun, therefore Esav, who was a Russia, would have, of course, been tremendously makakal the Bria. So therefore that's an even greater anguish. Because not only does it happen that the Bria does not have a Tikkun, but that the Bria has an incredible kilkel, even more so than was before. Whereas by Yaakov, had Yaakov and his family, Chas Vishon, been annihilated, then what would have resulted is that there's no Tikkun in the Bria, but there's no further kilkel. Perhaps then, that's why it says, more so than by Yaakov. Because according to the second possibility, there would have been, not only would there not have been a Tikkun, but also there would have been a vastly greater kilkel than what was done by Odom Harishan. That is just uh, as, uh, as an aside. Now, let us now continue with the Parshish Teodos. Now it says, Vayistim Esav is Yaakov, and Esav hated Yaakov. Here the Torah testifies that Esav hated Yaakov of his own free will. Esav hated Yaakov concerning the brocha that his father blessed him. But Yoyim Esav believed, so Esav said in his heart, Yikuvu Yeme Evil, Ovi, let the days of mourning for my father come, in other words, when my father will die. I will kill, of course, Yaakov, my brother. But you got the Rivka, and it was told this to Rivka, Rashi says to Ruach HaKadosh, because it was stated in Esav's heart. So obviously Rivka knew it to Ruach HaKadosh, and she could only know it that way. Anyway, by you got the Rivka is Divya Esav, and the words of Esav, uh, uh, of course, was told to Rivka, Beno HaGoro, Esav, her, her older son, his words were told to Rivka. Vatishloch, Vatikol Yaakov, and she sent and she called Yaakov, Bino Hakotan, her younger son, Vatimirolov, and she said to him, Hine Esav Achicho, Misnachim Lecholo Hogecho. Behold, Esav, your brother, is going to take comfort in the fact that he's going to kill you. Vyatobini, and now, my son, Shma Bikoli, hear my voice, Vakum, arise, Barach Lecho, run, flee, Elovan Ochi Chorona, to Lovan, who is my brother, who resides in Choron. And you will dwell with him several days, in other words, for a certain time. Until the anger of your brother will, of course, go away. Until the anger of your brother subsides. And he will forget what you did to him. Then I will send for you. And I will take you from there. Why should I be bereaved? Why should I suffer grief for both of you in the same day? Because what will only happen if you stay here is both of you will wind up killing each other. This is what so far it says in the Torah. Now, if we look back in the Pasuk, where it says, And now my son, Listen to my voice, V'kum, Arise, Barachlcha, and flee, Eloven Ochi Chorona, flee to Loven, my brother in Choron. In this Pasik, where it says, Vekum Barachlcha, Eloven Ochi Chorona, the Torah is Megala. The Torah reveals a profound revelation of what will transpire in the future to the Jewish people. 
What would happen to the descendants of Yaakov? What is this? What is this great secret? What is this prophetic announcement that the Torah reveals through the words of Rivka of what will transpire to the Jews thousands of years later? In the previous Shia, I had mentioned that Esau, who originally was Rome, if you recall, he became transformed into a religion or an ideology. And therefore, whoever would adopt and embrace that religion, and we know the religion is Christianity, that nation would also be Esau. Now, but at that time I did not say a reason. I merely stated the event that Esau became transformed from a nation to a religion. And as I had mentioned previously, therefore to indicate that Esau is not only is not Rome, but the inheritor of Rome is Christianity, therefore the Pope, who is of course the major power or representative of Christianity, sits in the Vatican, which of course is Rome. That indicates that Rome really is Christianity. I had mentioned this in the previous year. But at that time, I did not say a reason why this significant change occurred to Esau. The reason for this, however, can now be stated. Since Esau received the brochus because of the sins of Yaakov and his descendants, it meant that he would achieve material wealth and world dominion, because this is exactly what the brochus give. That is the significance of the brochus. Thus, Rome becomes a world power in accordance with the fact that Esau is Rome, and of course Esau now has those brochus because of the sins of Yaakov and his descendants. Since also Esau hates Yaakov, as we have just seen in the Torah, that Esau hates Yaakov, and he hates him of his own free will. Therefore we see that he obviously would love to oppress, to enslave, and to destroy Yaakov and his descendants. As again it says in the Torah, and let, me, let the days of mourning for my father pass, and then I'll kill Yaakov. Therefore, the Rabbani Shalom uses him, uses Esau and his descendants, whoever they are, to be the instruments of Anhogas HaYichod, when the, in other words, when the Jews must use method B, which we know is exile, subjugation, and persecution, to massacre the Kilkum creation. In other words, the Rebbeinu Shem uses Esav, of course, to allow Jews to, uh, to uh, achieve the Tikkun of the Kilkum creation through method B. Therefore, they are exiled, they go into subjugation and persecution at the hands of Esav, or whoever he is identified with. Therefore, Rome persecuted the Jews, which follows the entire Hashkofa theory. Now, as long as the Jews sin, and therefore they have to remain with Method B to massacre the Kilkel, Rome must be the one to, who is allowed to be their main or primary persecutor, since Rome is in truth Esav, and Esav is the instrument of Anhogas HaYichod, that backup system where the Rebbeinu makes sure that the universe gets a Tikkun. But a serious problem now arises. If this is the case, that Esau, who is Rome, has the brochus, and that Esau then is the instrument of Anhogas HaYichod, who will bring about or enable the Jews to achieve method B, to massacre and kill creation, by going through exile, subjugation, persecution. If this is true, and therefore Esau is the one, and since he is Rome, Rome is the one who must persecute the Jews, then there's a very serious problem. What is that? Since method B is being employed 
to bring a tikkun to the kilkul in creation. In other words, since the Jews will achieve this tikkun by going through exile, subjugation, and persecution at the hands of Esav, this means that the Jews must eventually suffer worldwide exile because of their sins. Because that's really what method B is. If Rome, who is Esav, remains a nation only, then it means that Rome would have to be in control over the entire, or rather all the lands which the Jews will be exiled to in order to continue to persecute them. Because they are the ones who enable the Jews to complete method B. So it logically follows that Rome has got to be able to follow them. Therefore the Roman nation, as a nation, has to be in control of all those lands. Therefore Rome would have to dominate the entire earth. Because the Jews will eventually spread all over the entire earth. Now, not only this, but Rome as a nation would have to dominate the entire earth for 2,000 years. Because that is exactly how long Method B will take place. In other words, that's exactly how long the Jews will be involved with Method B. The historical process is such that it is very difficult for any one singular nation to completely dominate the world. It is not easy through the historical process that takes place among mankind for one nation to have such awesome power to dominate the earth. It has happened, that's true, but it does not happen very frequently. Now, therefore, certainly to do so for 2,000 years is unheard of. And it's not possible within the framework of the historical process that the Rabbi Shalom Institute among mankind. In other words, that given the way history moves, it is very difficult for one nation to achieve world dominion. Even though it has happened, but it is a very difficult process. But certainly what is difficult, and it's probably impossible, given that historical process, for a nation to be a world power or have achieved true world domination for 2,000 years. Therefore, since Esav or Rome is the instrument of Anhogas Yichud by the Rabbanishlam, and they are the ones who are given success to oppress and persecute the Jews, then Esav must be transformed from a nation which is limited to a religion which can easily be embraced by all nations all over the globe, and can last thousands of years. In other words, if Esav remains a nation, then it is almost inconceivable that one nation will dominate the earth for 2,000 years. In other words, to dominate completely the earth for 2,000 years. Because since the Jews have to be exiled all over the earth, it follows that if they are the instrument of Anokas Yichud, they have to follow the Jews all over. That Rome should be able to be a world nation for 2,000 years with such an incredible dominion is not possible. Therefore, what the Rebbeinu does is he transforms Esav from a nation which is limited in its ability to be the agent of Anogos Yichud to a religion. And this religion is able to spread out through all, out through all the globe and last 2,000 years. And that's exactly what has happened in history. Rome has adopted Christianity, which was then adopted by nations all over the globe. And that, and that this Christianity has been with us for almost 2,000 years, steadily persecuting the Jews, no matter where and how far they go in exile. That is why 
uh, Asaf has to be transformed from a nation through a religion because a religion is not limited with the uh, limitations or boundaries that a nation has. A religion can last thousands of years and be spread all through the globe because it is not one nation that has this religion but all nations can embrace this religion. Therefore, it is not possible for Esau to persecute the Jews anywhere all over the globe for 2,000 years since he has been transformed into a religion and of course we know what that religion is, Christianity. This is the underlying reason why Esau, who originally started out as Esau into the Etruscans, into the Italian peoples, and of course uh, who eventually became the Imperial Rome, finally became Christianity because now Esau, who was the agent of Anogos Yichot, can now follow the Jews throughout the globe for as long as the Jews are into method B because they are not deserving of method A. Now, but the truth is, even the Jews must have a period of respite and rest from the oppression of Esau if they are to survive. Even the Jews, who are very strong in their beliefs, cannot survive the power of Esau for 2,000 years all over the globe. It is impossible. Even the Jews have to have a place to run to, to take some nucha, to have rest for a period of time until the Rebunshim wants to again use Esau as the vehicle of Anhogos HaYichod. Therefore, Rivka tells Yaakov, flee to love on my brother in Choram. What Rivka is telling Yaakov is that in order to survive the hate and maleficence of Esau, you have to go to Choram to Lovan. In other words, Choram is in Syria or the Arabian lands. In other words, she is saying to Yaakov, flee to the Arabian lands and you will be able to survive when the going gets too rough for you with Esau. That's where you have to run. This action or this statement by Rivka foretells what will happen 2,300 years later. As long as Esau is merely one nation, even though if it is a world power, it is still possible for Jews to go to a place where Esau or Rome is not in control and therefore gain a respite from their persecutions and survive. Because no country, no nation has ever dominated the world completely. Therefore, it is possible for Jews still to go to some place where they won't be subject to the constant oppressions and persecutions of Esau, and they can survive. However, when Esau is transformed to a religion, then it is possible to perse persecute the Jews all over the globe. How will they survive? Where are they going to run? Therefore, the Chochmah of the Rebbeinu dictated that there must arise a land where Esau will not dominate as a religion, so the Jews can flee for their own survival's sake. Therefore, as Rivka's actions indicate, as Rivka's statement or advice to Yaakov indicates, this foretells 2,300 years ago before that the land would be the Arabian lands, which would be free of Esau's control and influence. That is where they can run. Just like Yaakov ran there, the Jews also who are descendants of Yaakov can also run to the Arabian lands. But, you may ask a question. There is no guarantee through the normal historical processes that Christianity will not take hold in the Arabian lands because it's doing a great job of spreading throughout the globe. Especially 
when Christianity is far more attractive a religion than the absurd pagan worship and polytheism that was then prevalent among the Arabs. The Arabs at that time were steeped into tremendous polytheism and paganism. Therefore, Christianity, as compared to paganism, is much more attractive. So there's no guarantee that Christianity won't spread even to the Arab countries, just like it spread all over the globe, or just like it spread throughout Western Europe. So then how will it happen that even the Arab lands won't become Christian? What's the Eitzah? But wait, there is one way. There is a way, even through the historical process, that the Arab lands will not fall under the influence of Christianity. Do you know how? The Rabbi has to give success to a religious innovator in the Arab countries that will, that will uh, initiate or form a religion that will be as attractive as Christianity in respect to the paganism. And this religion will be a force to counter Christianity to, uh, in trying to gain a foothold in the Arabian lands. In other words, only a strong and attractive religion can serve as a successful deterrent to another strong and attractive religion. Therefore, once Asif becomes a religion, you need another religion to counter the entrance the domination of Esau as Christianity in the Arabian lands. How do we do this? Therefore, we see the rise of Islam. Right after Rome, who was Esau, becomes transformed into Christianity in order to prevent Esau from totally destroying the Jews. Thus, historically, incredibly enough, and almost coincidentally enough, that we now see it is not a coincidence, but it is part of the incredible divine wisdom that success is given to Muhammad in 569 at the time when he was born and shortly thereafter to found the religion of Islam that will make sure that Christianity who is Esau will stay out of the Arabian lands and allow the Jews a manucha, a respite, a rest from the intense sufferings of Esau. This was foretold in, Rivka, in Rivka's advice to Yaakov 2,300 years ago before this event ever occurred that just as by Yaakov the Arabian lands would serve as a place of refuge from the sufferings from Esau so also would the Arabian lands serve as a refuge for his descendants from Esau 2,300 years ago and since Esau becomes transformed into a religion the way the revolution makes sure that Esau will not be able to influence and dominate the Arabian lands is by allowing Muhammad to be successful in his introduction of Islam. Therefore, the religion of Islam arose at that time to counter the religion of Christianity, or who is Esau, to enable this to happen. Therefore, the Jews, historically, whenever things have gotten too rough in Western Europe, have been able to run to North, to North Africa, of course, to the other Arabian lands. Not, that's not to say that the Arabs have not persecuted the Jews, but between the both of them, they have gotten a refuge and respite. And Christianity has been a much, much greater persecutor of the Jews than the Arabs ever were. Uh, you can't bring a, a proof in terms of what's happening today, because basically before the creation of the state, the uh, Jews lived in relative tranquility in the Arab lands. Therefore, we see how interestingly enough, and how profoundly actually, that in Parshas Tildos, literally, it reveals the entire future history of the Jews 
and their relationship to the rest of mankind. This is what we see Parshas Tildes reveals. It reveals the entire history in terms of the Jews and Esau, and also the Jews and what would happen to the Arabian lands and Esau throughout the entire rest of the history of mankind. Let us now continue on in Parshas Tildes. It says that, Vatimir Rivka El Yitzchok and Rivka said Yitzchok Katsti Bechayai that I am disgusted with my life. Because of the daughters of Ches, if Yaakov takes a woman or a wife from the daughters of Ches, like these of the daughters of the land, then why is life necessary? What do I have to live for? And he blessed him. And he commanded him, Do not take a woman or a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Instead, Go to Padan Aram, to the house of Besuel, the father of your mother, and take there a wife from the daughters of Lovan, who is the brother of your mother, your uncle. The Kael Shaddai, and God who Almighty, let him bless you, and let him make you fruitful, and multiply you, and you shall be for an assembly of nations, or peoples. And let him give you the blessings of Avram. In other words, those blessings which the Rabbanishlam gave to Avram, let God give you these blessings also. to you itoch, and to your descendants, your children with you. to inherit the land of your wanderings, which the Rabbanishlam gave to Avram Avinu. And then it says that Yitzchok sent Yaakov, and he went to Padnaram to Lovin, the son of Besuel, the Aramean, the brother Rivka who was the mother, of course, of Yaakov and Esav. Then it says that Esav saw that Yitzchak blessed Yaakov and that he sent him to Padnaram to take for him a wife. So therefore, and he commanded him, of course, not to take from the Bnei's Knoan, from the daughters of Canaan. And therefore, and, and Yaakov, of course, heard his father and his mother and he went to Padnaram to do that. Therefore, Esav saw this, that the uh, daughters of Canaan were evil in the sight of Yitzchak, his father. So therefore, Esav went to Yishmoel and he took his daughter, Machlas Basi Shmuel, uh, of course, Yishmuel, the son of Avram, a sister to Nevoyos. He took her to be a wife for him, besides all the other wi- wives that he had previously. This, then, is the uh, rest of the, uh, the parasha. Now, <clears throat> when Yitzchak blessed Yaakov, he invokes or he uses the Shem in the Pasuk of the Kael Shaddai, and God Almighty, Yevorich Oischo, let him bless you. V'yafrecho, let him make you fruitful. V'yarbecho, let him multiply you. V'yoyiso lekal abim, and you will be for an assembly of peoples. V'yitinlecho as birchas Avram, and he should give you the blessings of Avram to you and to your seed, your, gen- your children after you, to inherit the land of your wanderings, which the Rabbani Shalom, of course, gave to Avram. So therefore we see that when Yitzchak blesses Yaakov, he uses the name of God, Kil Shaddai. This is the name he uses of the Rabbani Shalom when he blesses Yaakov. Now, as indicated in a previous Shia, the name of the Rabbani Shalom, of Kil Shaddai, reflects two important ideas. The first idea is that the Rabbani Shalom has a sufficiency of brochus to give to whomever he wants to give to. Because it says Shaddai 
kill a god Shaddai who has a sufficiency. That's what Shaddai means, that has a sufficiency. Therefore, it means that the Rabbi Shalom isn't choser, isn't limited in terms of the blessings that he can give a person. That in his hands is a sufficiency of all the blessings that exist. And if he wants, he can give whatever he wants to anybody he chooses to. Therefore, the Rabbi Shalom has a sufficiency of brachas to give to whomever he wants to give. In other words, he can give Rachmanus, he can give Oilam Habo, he can give a Yeshua, and so on. Whatever he wants to give, he has a sufficiency of all those brachas. That's the first idea that Vikil Shaddai means. God who has a sufficiency of what? Of brachas. The second important idea that Vikil Shaddai connotates is that the Rabbi Shalom has sufficient power to do whatever he wants. In other words, that the Rabbi Shalom, even if he has brachas, but maybe he doesn't have the power. Maybe he can be obstructed or influenced by something else to change his mind. Therefore, Vekel Shaddai means Vekel Shaddai, a God who has the sufficient power to do whatever he wants to do. There is no obstruction in front or before the Rabbanu Shalom if he wants to give a brocha. Therefore, Yitzchak invokes the name of God that refers to the Rabbanu Shalom's attribute of total absolute control or mastery over all creation. He invokes that name when he gives the brocha to Yaakov. Why does he invoke that particular name which indicates the attribute of God's absolute mastery and God's sufficient blessings? Why does he invoke that name? Because even if Yaakov and his descendants sin in the future and therefore to come out that they are not worthy because of their own merits to receive Olam Habo and to be redeemed, which of course is the idea of Anhogasa Mishpat, then the Rabbani Shalom should use his attribute of absolute mastery over all creation, even over Din itself. That even if Yaakov and his descendants sin, and they don't have the merits to be redeemed and get him a bomb, he should use Kel Shaddai, the attribute of sufficient power and sufficient blessings, that Klai Yisrael should be zeichet to Yeshua, to redemption, and also to Olam Habo. In other words, that he should conduct himself, God should conduct himself according to the attribute of Anhogas HaYichod to enable the Jews to massacre creation and get Ulam Habo. This is why he uses the term or the name Vikel Shaddai. God who has sufficient power, will have sufficient blessings, let him bless you because then you will surely be blessed. In other words, you will surely earn Ulam Habo because the Rabbi Shalom will use his Anhogas HaYichod. Now, that is what Vikel Shaddai means. Important to understand. Now, but it is important to note that this name of God refers to Anhogas HaYichud only in potential, the Koyach. In other words, that Yitzchak, when he gives the blessings to Yaakov, is saying that God, in his attribute of being able to be a Manik B'Yichud, and is able to be all-powerful and having all blessings. Let him give you those blessings. In other words, that the Rabbani Shalom can and will conduct himself according to the conduct of Anhogas HaYichud to ensure the redemption of the Gu'ula of the Jews and Ulam Haba for the Jews. But remember, the others never saw the Rabbani Shalom actually conduct himself according to Anhogas HaYichud, the Poyal, in actuality. They never saw this. They never saw him conduct himself 
in that attribute and actually redeem the Jews, the God promises to do this. And this is what Yitzhak says to Yaakov, that God who can do it and who will do it, let him bless you. But the Rabbanishim has not done it yet. So therefore, that name of Kael Shaddai refers to God in his ability to have the power and have all the blessings only in potential, the Koyach, that he can and will do it. It does not mean the attribute that God actually does do this. In other words, because of that, the time that this happened, in other words, the actual Gula, the redemption through Anogas Yichud, was Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That is when the Rebbe Hashem actually fulfilled his promise. That is when he actually did conduct himself according to Anogas Yichud. Was at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. In other words, through the exile, the subjugation and persecution by the Egyptians over the Jews, the Rabbani the Shalom redeemed Klai Yisrael through Anhogas Yichud in actuality, as he had promised the Ovis. Remember that exile, subjugation, and persecution or sufferings are the instruments through which Anhogas Yichud operates if the Jews don't do mitzvahs and tshuva initially. Therefore, we see that the actualization of the Anhogas Yichud of the Rabbani Shalom and the actualization of the sufficiency of brachas of the Rabbanu only became apparent with the Tzias Mitzrayim. And only at that particular time could one see the attribute of Anhogas Yichud of the Rabbanu and his sufficiency of blessings in terms of redemption. They could only see it at the time of Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim. <clears throat> that is important to remember. That this name of Kael Shaddai only refers to Anhogas Yichud of the Rabbanu and the fact that he has a sufficiency of blessings only in terms of Bikoyach, potentially. But in actuality, the Rabbanu did not conduct himself in terms of Anhogas Yichud and the tremendous sufficiency of Brochus, the Rachmonus that the Rabbanu has and the redemption that the Rabbanu would give. One could not observe this until Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. At that time, then obviously his power above all things, even over Din, and the sufficiency of blessings to bring the redemption, the Havrachmanus only became apparent at that time because that is actually when he did it. In other words, <clears throat> at the time of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, one could observe several things. That the Rabbanu can control everything, even Din, because the Jews, the Jews at that time <clears throat> did not deserve to leave Egypt by their own merits. In other words, according to their own merits, they would not have been permitted to. But it's through the attribute of Anhogas Yichud, that power that the Shalom has to over, overreach Din and ensure that the Jews get a redemption, of course, through Anhogas Yichud, that is what you saw at the time of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. The second thing you saw at Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, that the Shalom has a sufficiency of blessings to give out to whomever he wants to. <clears throat> and that, of course, manifested itself in the redemption, the Gula, the fact that the Jews, of course, went out from Egypt. The third thing that you, you could see at the time of Mitzrayim is that the Rabbani Shalom keeps his promise whenever he makes one. In other words, <clears throat> that the Rabbani Shalom is keeping his promise to the others that the Jews would eventually be redeemed and not Chas be destroyed. Now, <clears throat> these three ideas one could see in actuality at the time of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. Now, what shame of God, what name of God refers 
to these ideas, in other words, what name of God indicates the absolute mastery over all creation, that God has a sufficiency of all blessings, and that the Rebbeinu is able to keep any of his promises, what name refers to this? That is the name Yudke Vovke. That Shem of God, which is Yudke Vovke, that shame of God refers to the Rebbeinu in terms of his attribute of Anhogasi Yichud, and the fact that he has a sufficiency of blessings, and that he keeps his promise, that name refers to God in terms of those attributes. In other words, the shame or the name of God that indicates absolute mastery over all creation, which is Anhogasi Yichud, a sufficiency of all blessings, and also, and therefore the Rebbeinu is able to keep any of his promises, because obviously no one can obstruct him or influence to the contrary, that name is Yudke Vavke. Now, <clears throat> you may ask, why does the Rebbe identify himself so essentially with the name Yudke Vavke? And the answer to that is that this Shem of God originally, or rather it originates or it derives from the verb to be, which is Yihyeh. Lihiyois means to be. And that verb gives rise to the name Yudke Vovke. Why? Why does the name of God derive from the verb to be? And the answer to that is that we know from previous Shuram that the Rabbani Shlom does not have existence, but rather he is existence, if you recall. In other words, we, his creations, have an essence. We have characteristics. And we and, and that and these things have existence. Therefore, our essence exists, or rather, we therefore exist. Because we who have essence, we who have characteristics, we have existence, and therefore we are. We exist. But if you remove the quality of existence from us, from our essence, from our characteristics, then we who actually are identical to our essence, who are identical to our characteristics, would cease to be. Because if you take away the quality of existence from us, then we cease to be. Because we have been. We are not being, per se. But the Rabbani Shalom is the very concept of existence itself. That is his essence. Therefore, in other words, the Rabbani Shalom is existence personified. That is what the Rabbani Shalom is. Therefore, if the Rabbani Shalom is the very concept of existence, or this very concept of being, then obviously the most appropriate name to call the Rabbani Shalom is a name that means being or existence. This is obviously the most appropriate name to call the Rabbani Shalom because that is what he really is. Now, a name is always reflects or should always reflect the essence or the essential characteristics of any being. That's what a name should reflect, not the accidental properties or the non-essential characteristics of a being, but it should reflect the true essence of that being, his true characteristics. Now, since the verb yihye or lihiyois means being, then the most appropriate name which would indicate that the Rabbanu is the very concept of existence, the very essence of being, would be derived from yihye or the verb to be. Therefore, the essential name which the Rabbanu he uses to identify himself, what he uses to call himself, is the name of Yud K Vov K, which I said 
derives from the verb to be, since the Rabbanu Shalom is existence or being itself. That is why the Rabbanu Shalom calls himself Yudke Vavke, because Yudke Vavke derives from the verb to be, and the Rabbanu Shalom is essentially being per se. Therefore, God adopts that name which reflects being. Therefore, he is called Yudke Vavke. Now, we see that Yudke Vavke is that Shem, or that name, which refers to the attribute of God, which indicates that the Rabboni Shalom is a being or existence per se. And therefore, the Rabboni Shalom must impart his being, of which he is. In other words, he has to impart his being, which is the quality of existence, to others in order, in order for anything to exist at all. If anything can exist, they must have the quality of existence. If existence is God, then God must impart that quality which He is to others. Therefore, of course, everything that is, is part of God, because they must borrow of the existence of the Rabbani Shalom. Therefore, thus if the Rabbani Shalom removes His being from creation, it instantly ceases to be, because its quality of existence has been removed. That is why, if the Rabbani Shalom removes His existence, from the universe, then the universe instantly ceases to be because God has removed existence from creation. Namely, He has removed Himself. <clears throat> That's why we are all completely dependent on the Rabbi Islam because we have to use His existence. We have to use the Rabbi Islam in order to exist ourselves. Now, therefore, we now see why these three ideas mentioned previously are only associated with the Shem of Yudke Vavke. If the Rabbani Shalom's existence per se is existence per se, then obviously that exists, then obviously everything that exists besides the Rabbani Shalom is given the quality of existence by the Rabbani Shalom in order to exist at all. If everything derives their very being from the Rabbani Shalom, it follows that the Rabbani Shalom is the complete absolute master over everything that has existence. Therefore, it is logical to assume that the Rabbani Shalom can override or supersede anything, even Din, which is justice, itself to do whatever he wishes. Since they all exist because he gives it existence, because they borrow of he himself, therefore he is the, obviously the complete and absolute master over all existence besides himself. Because if he wants, he would just remove that existence and they would cease to be. Or, to look at another way, if he is their existence, so he can make them do whatever he wants, because they can only do what they have existence in. And if he gives them existence, obviously, he can let them do or make them do whatever he wants, because that is how they would exist in to do whatever he wants. Therefore, the name of the Rabbani Shalom, Yudke Vavke, or rather, the name of the Rabbani Shalom, which identifies the attribute of Anhogasa Yichod, is therefore obviously Yudke Vavke. Because the ability to override anything at all, even justice, even Anhogasa Mishpat, is, or rather comes from the fact that the Rabbani Shalom is existence itself. Therefore, Yudke Vavke means Anhogasa Yichod, and it means it in actuality. 
Bepoel. So this is the first idea that derives or associated with the Shem of the Rebbeinu called Yudke Vavke. Hanoga Sayichud, whenever that's referred to in the Torah, it's referred to by the name of God, Yudke Vavke, because it is the fact that the Rebbeinu is the absolute master over all, because he is the source of existence of all. Therefore, that is why Hanoga Sayichud is always referred to in terms of the Rebbeinu or rather when he does use the conduct of Anogas Yichud, God calls himself Yudke Vovke. Now, the second idea that the Rebbeinu has a sufficiency of blessings to give out in actuality, for instance, Geula, Redemption, Rachmonus, Mercy, and so on, is also associated with that name of Yudke Vovke. Because if the Rebbeinu is existence, in other words, that everything exists in him, then it follows that in him is the totality of all creation. For if it would not be in him, it wouldn't exist. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> the totality of all creation includes the totality of all blessings, obviously, that can possibly occur. Therefore, by logical inference, in him lies the totality of all blessings that can possibly occur. Thus, the Rebbe has a full sufficiency of blessings, and he is not limited whatsoever in his ability to bestow whatever blessings he wishes to bestow. Therefore, again, we see that the idea that the Rebbe has whatever blessings he wants to bestow, and he's not limited in the sense that he cannot bestow every blessing. Obviously, he has complete control over all blessings, because he is the totality of all existence, therefore in him lies the totality of all blessings also. Now, the third idea that the Rabbani Shlodim will deliver what he promises to deliver also derives from the Shem of Yud Kei Vav Kei will be discussed next week.